About 40 years have passed since Rome and Britain had gone to war. It cost about 250,000 lives, which was a huge number when you consider the population was a lot smaller then than now. That war was coming to something of an end, but other wars were all across the empire. Recently, fairly recently, a volcano had erupted, killing 16,000 people in a single city buried in ash and fire. An epidemic broke out in the capital, and then in a few years, about a decade, a pandemic would sleep across the world. The emperor was reestablishing worship of his family. Persecution against the church was amping up again. He was assassinated, so it was a time of real political turmoil. There were scandals in the churches, fights among some key church leaders, and that was happening during the time frame that John wrote his first letter. <clears throat> so what's happening in our world as we read from his letter this morning? The Middle East is threatening to explode. The Russian-Ukraine war is about to pass two years in its duration with no end in sight. Azerbaijan and Armenia are largely off the radar, but that could erupt into a major regional conflict. The U.S. House has its own war. The culture wars continue to grow, however you choose to define them, but they're like a war. And then you have all the thousands of local problems and then all the personal problems each of us is dealing with. All of us have things in our lives, just like John and his readers dealt with. So what are we to do in here? I mean, during this hour, are we burying our heads in the sand by not talking more about all the current issues in the world? And what about John? Was he oblivious to all that was happening in the world when he wrote his letter? Why didn't he talk about it more? So what if First John was mostly about then current news? We probably wouldn't be reading it this morning. And if we focus on current news in here, how will it shape us for time and eternity? Do we really need another person, me, waxing eloquent on contemporary, soon-to-be-old news? And I'm aware of what's happening. I read a lot. I read the news I read books. I prefer books that aren't knee-jerk reactions to current events. I admit I don't care for social media. It's okay if you do. I hate letters to the editor. I don't really care. Uh, I prefer to hear from people with expertise and then with longer perspectives. And there's certainly a place in the church to talk about these things. I have conversations with people all the time about these things. But I'm convinced by settled conviction that what we need in gathered worship is the longest perspective of all. We need God's perspective. And he's given it to us in his word. And as we're shaped by his word, we're equipped to go out and shape our world. This has always been God's strategy to change the world. Now, there's historical narrative in the Bible, like the book of Exodus, the book of Acts. But it's not newspaper or blog narrative. It's narrative narrowly focused on the acts of God in history towards the coming of Christ and then the return of Christ. And so we have to be aware of what's happening around us, but we can't let current events be the main thing shaping our lives. We have to see what's happening around us and what's happening in us as well through the lens of the gospel and not any other lens. And if we see through a gospel lens what's happening around us and also what's happening inside of us, then we're going to be equipped to be found faithful in the world and in our lives, and that's our primary goal. It's, been, it's required that those who have been given a trust, Paul wrote, be found faithful. Percival Lowell, that's him looking through a telescope in an in a observatory named after him. He was a 19th century American astronomer, and he made some important discoveries. But he was really fascinated with Mars and then later with Venus. And he thought he saw on Mars these canals. And he, he went from seeing these what looked like canals through his telescope 
to speculating that there was an advanced indigenous civilization who were making this last-ditch effort to save their dying planet by digging canals for polar ice. It's a pretty big leap from seeing some lines on Mars. But he also saw spoke-like structure on Venus, and that's his drawing of what he saw. He thought there was probably life there, too. Other scientists were skeptical but curious. I mean, what was he seeing? They weren't seeing it. And a century later, some astronomers proposed a theory that Lowell was gazing into his own eye because the way Lowell had set up his telescope... He was turning it into a giant version of the instrument used by eye doctors to see into the eye. The way he looked at, the way he looked at it, the time of day, and then how he, he, he was focusing it, what he thought were spokes on planets were, at, were actually the shadows of blood vessels and other structures in his own retina. So instead of mapping the surface of planets, he was mapping his own eye. So this phenomenon is a well-known annoyance among astronomers observing planets at very high magnification. Looking in, he's looking in the cosmos and he was seeing himself. So John is looking through the lens of the gospel and he's seeing God in history, seeing God in history past, future, and then looking at the present. And we're going to see in this passage today how he challenges us to look forward to the return of Christ, backwards to Christ's first coming, and then to look at our lives through that perspective. November 5th and 12th and 19th, I'm going to be teaching our next River Christian training class on worldviews. And the term worldview, as best I can tell, I don't know for sure, was coined in the not-that-distant past by James Sire. He wrote The Universe Next Door. But it's used by virtually everyone now to describe how people see the world. I hear it, read it almost every week. But a worldview is best described not as how we see the world, but what we see the world through. The worldview is a lens through which we look at the world, understand the world, and live in the world. And everyone has a worldview, but not everyone's aware of it or how it impacts them. And certainly not everyone's worldview is coherent or true. And John's letter, like all the scriptures, giving us a lens through which we see the world as it is. Non-Christian worldviews skew perspective, like Lowell seeing his own eye. And scripture is the corrective lens that fixes our myopia and allows us to see what's actually there. And John, as we've talked about, as we've been in his letter, is specifically concerned with Christian certainty, confidence. He'll say in chapter 5, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And as people look around in his time and our time and they're confused by heresy and all these different ideas, personal tragedy, current events and trends, he wants his dear friends to have certainty in the gospel, to have confidence and to that end, he gives three tests. He's already given them, and he's going to give them again in this passage to help with our confidence. The theological test, do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God incarnate? The moral test, sin is incompatible with walking in the light. We're going to sin, he said, but we must not surrender to it. Christ has come to give us freedom from it. And then the social, relational test, since God is love, to say you love God but to not love others is to be deceived. How can you... Say you love the unseen God, we don't love the people right around you. And so these three things, these three tests, faith, holiness, and love, are the signs of the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's lives. And he gives these tests or these lenses in his letter. He's already given them. He took a couple laps around a couple other important issues. Now he's back for round two of these three tests. And so you'll find the moral test in chapter 2, 28 to 310, and then the love test, and then the truth test again. So our confidence, our certainty grows when we train for righteousness. 
when we're faithful and seeking to love one another, then we fix our minds on the truth of who Jesus is. And so he's after this certainty, and certainty requires clarity. So today we're going to look at his elaboration of the moral test. The proof of being a Christian is not just orthodox belief, orthodoxy, but it's orthopraxy, living in line with who God is. Someday John writes, we'll, we'll see Christ face to face. We will be fully transformed in his image. We'll be holy. And so now the more clearly we see him, the more we become like him in his holiness. Verse 28, so now little children remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So righteousness is evidence of new birth. It's not the cause of it. And our confidence is tied to this kind of living. Our lives are to bear family resemblance. And so as we live like his kids, we grow in joy and confidence in him. And sin, and we all know this from experience, can undermine our confidence. See what great love, now we're in chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. And what's translated see what, that little phrase, is a single word in the Greek that, that would have meant originally of what country, of what country is this love from. So to get a context, imagine you're in a first century Seaport, people were coming from all over the Mediterranean. There's Asia Minor and Italy and North Africa. And you're asking passerby, what country are you from? What country are you from? They would have used this word. And so John's saying, where does this love come from? It's not from around here. See what great love the Father has given us. How can it be that we would be called God's children? And David put it like this. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place... What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And Jesus gives us a new way of talking about God in the New Testament. He calls him Abba, Daddy. And he is that. He is able to be called that very intimate phrase, Daddy. But we cannot forget that he remains God. And if we forget that, we're going to start seeing our own eye when we look around at the world. We're going to ensmall God down to our size. So when I contemplate the cosmos, when I think about that before time and space God was, I've been studying the book of John. We're going to be in the book of John starting in the first of next year. And when I read that first passage over and over, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. I think about that. I can't bring myself to demand that God answer to me on anything. I don't expect to understand him on any level on my own. If he hadn't told me who he was, I wouldn't know him. I could know some things about him, Romans 1 says, from what he's made, but I couldn't know him personally. Had he not made me, I would not exist. Did he not hold me in existence, I would cease to exist. He doesn't answer to me, I answer to him. He owes me no explanation, no apology. I am his possession, he can do with me what he wants. And you might be thinking, Terry, you say that flippantly. I wonder if you would say that if this happened to you or that happened to you. I wonder that too. I don't know how I'm going to respond in the future. I hope I'm going to respond in faith. But I'm not remotely flippant about this. I believe what I just said to you in the middle of some very difficult times. So no, I'm not flippant. But I do believe it. I think about the transcendence of God over all things. 
I tend to go to God with David's question, who am I that you're mindful of me? So the biggest question for me at this point in my life is not, is, is not why aren't you more involved? It's why are you involved at all? Really, the greatness of God who made the cosmos is one thing. He's transcendence. The greatness of a cosmos making God who calls me his child, that's another thing. And so John says, up what country is this love? It's not from around here. But think about trying to get next to some celebrity, some world leader. You're not going to get close. There's gates and guards and there's wealth and walls. And all these human celebrities, all of them, even the one with the movie out right now, all of them are made of dust. And they'll return to dust. And the cosmos-making God has called us his children. And not just in the general sense of we are God's children in terms of being human beings, but in the specific sense of being born again through the gospel. He is Abba, Daddy, and we are his children by new birth. And the reason the world does not know us, he writes, is that it didn't know him. John says this directly in his gospel. Jesus made the world, and he came to his own creation, the people he had made, but they didn't recognize him. And the fact that we've been born again isn't going to be readily obvious to the people around us. We look like regular folks. Hopefully we're acting different because of the gospel, but we, just, we don't look like people who are destined to be made in the image of Christ. And the gospel is that time telescope that looks backward, looks forward, and it allows us to see what's not readily available for other people to see. We look through the lens of the gospel. We see God's purpose in the world. We look back at the first coming with this moral implication. We look forward to the second coming with this moral implication. And it's supposed to be shaping us into people that are different. Now, the first coming of the Messiah has been largely turned into cultural sentimentality. And I have to admit, I love almost everything about cultural Christmas. I get excited when I see Christmas stuff in Home Depot in July. I love White Christmas, the movie, the song. I am sad that for all the many trappings can submerge what is the most important event in human history, the first coming of Christ. I'm sad because even though I love the trappings, they're fun, they can hide the fact that the gospel, the first coming of Christ, is about transformation, new life in Christ. But it's equally tragic when Christians turn his second coming, his imminent return, into weird speculation. It also can submerge it. Speculation that goes up when world events heat up. Ironically, Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you hear of wars and rumors of war, the end is not yet. And Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 that the end will come when people are saying peace and prosperity. So my opinion is we should never speculate on the end, but if we did, it'd make more sense to do so when the market is up and wars were down. But the point biblically of looking back at the Lord's first advent and looking forward to his second advent is both of those, the information we do have on those, is given to impact how we live our lives between the advents. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So we are God's children, whether the world sees it or not, and what we will be, what that glorified state will be, remains to a large degree a mystery. The exact nature of it's mysterious. It doesn't do good to speculate beyond what God has revealed, and that's not a lot. My suspicion is that if he gave us more information about what our future destiny looks like, we wouldn't know what we were looking at. We were not equipped to handle it in our current state. Paul had an experience where he was exposed to some 
So the set, he was taken up into the second heaven and saw some things, and he came back and like, I don't even know how to t- talk to you about what I saw. It was amazing. Can't even hardly talk about it. Charlie Plum grew up in a small Kansas town in the 40s and 50s, and I've become acquainted with him the past nine months or so, and I've enjoyed hearing some of his story. We were on a, a teleconference last week, and we ran out of the business stuff to talk about, so I started prompting him to tell stories, and it was really fun. He became a Navy fighter pilot, was shot down in Vietnam. He's in his 80s now, and he travels the world speaking about his experiences. And when he was asked, did you, did you have these dreams of being a pilot and traveling the world? He said, you know, I saw planes flying over, but I never thought I'd be on one, let alone fly one. He said, I wasn't equipped to have those dreams from my experience. So how does a boy in 1948 Kansas dream of what he can't even conceive of? And his dreams grew as his experience grew. And to me, that, that's what we have. We've been given as much information about our future as we're equipped to handle. More will follow as we're given better equipment. And here's what we know. John says, when he appears, and he will appear, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. And so his point of that is we're, we're already being remade in his image. We're not yet fully restored to that image. We will be fully restored then. And so let's get on with it. This is our destiny that's, that's the end goal. Let's get on with it now. The reason for revelation we've been given is transformational, not speculative. It's not to sit around and speculate or to sell your stuff or to equip your bunker. It's to be transformed in the image of Christ. That's what's coming for us. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope is he will appear, guaranteed, we'll see him, we'll be like him. And it's not an uncertain hope. It's not like mere human hopes. I hope I marry. I hope I have children. I hope this is not cancer. I hope the war doesn't expand. It's not that kind of hope. It's hope as a surety, as a confidence. And that confidence is supposed to lead to change character. So we look through the gospel lens of the future return of Christ, see what that'll mean for us. And that view is supposed to shape us now. We're going to be done with sin. Let's be being done with sin now. Let's be shaped by that fact now. C.S. Lewis wrote The Problem of Pain in 1940. He had suffered personally in the trenches of World War I. He had actually been, been wounded, saw people die in that terrible war. And when he wrote this book, his homeland, England, was being bombed from the air as World War II had descended with its darkness. And I've read that book many times over the years. It's really helpful, but it's largely cognitive. It's really helpful ideas about suffering. Classic theodicy. How could God be there, be good, be powerful, and there be so much suffering? And he gives really good reasoned answers for it. And then last week I reread his book called A Grief Observed that he wrote in 1960, 20 years later. And there he gives his personal view on suffering. It's a view from inside his heart, not just his head. His wife, Joy, had died of cancer. It's a very different kind of book. And it's not grief observed. It's a grief observed. It's very, very specific. And one of the things that comes out in the book, and he brings it out himself, is how Lewis finds himself, not God, not others, and not even Joy, at the center of things, at the center of his struggle. And this Finding himself at the center over and over increases his struggle, decreases his clarity, undermines his confidence. And this is the epicenter of all the sin in our lives, putting ourselves at the center of our lives. And this struggle is common to all people. 
So we can look at non-Christians and think, well, they're nice. They're just so nice. How can they be far from God? They're nicer than that, that guy in my group, that girl in my group. God alone sees the heart. And Scripture says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the center of sin, making ourselves the center of all things rather than crowning and keeping Christ the center. And so we focus our view on Christ's return to compel us to be more like him now. This is our destiny. Let's get on with that destiny now. This is the end of human history. Christ is in charge of it. He'll bring it to its own conclusion. Why are we wasting our efforts, our joys, our sorrows, and anything else? Become like Christ now. It's your destiny. And so next he adjusts the telescope from looking at the implications of the future hope Christ coming to looking back what are the implications for Christ first appearing well the implications are the same Christ has come Christ returned let that reality shape your life let them propel you towards holiness so again this is the moral argument he's giving us Christ coming Christ has come let that shape you into Christ-like holiness now and so first the problems again announced the problem is sin and then the solution is given again so the problem, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. So we look around at other people, we look in our own hearts, and we sort of see, well, there's, there is some ranking of sin. You know, there's, like, there's Hitler, and then there's everything less than Hitler. And then there's sort of the relatively harmless stuff. Come on, it's not that bad. John defines sin as lawlessness. He defines it as defiance of God's moral law. And in reality, you can no more break the moral law without consequences and you can break the laws of nature you can, you dive into a solid object you break your neck you dive into sin you break your life so that's the problem sin is lawlessness and now the solution you know that he was revealed so he might take away sins and there is no sin in him everyone who remains in him does not sin and this is this is if it sounds confusing if you remember early on he was saying that if you say you don't sin you lie here he's talking about it from a different angle he's talking about continuing to sin everyone who sins has not seen him or know him little children let no one deceive you the one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous the one who commits sin is of the devil for the devil has sinned from the beginning the son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him he is not able to sin because he's been born of God this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. And that last part is a segue to next week's passage, which is the, the love test, the social test. So in this passage, there's a duplication of a single line of reasoning. There's the setup, verses 4 and 8, everyone who sins, and then there's the terrible fact of sin, verses 4 and 8, the nature of sin is lawlessness, the origin of sin is the devil, the purpose of sin's appearing, verses 5 and 8, he appeared to take away our sins, he appeared to destroy the devil's work, and in the conclusion, verse 6 and 9, don't continue in sin. To continue in sin as a follower of Christ is at odds with the purpose of his coming, is fail, to fail to live in line with your birthright. And so what I want to do now is bring some of the key points of his letter up to this point together in application because John's purpose is about not just information but transformation he's he's aiming for increased confidence he's given us clarity for confidence so the first step towards holiness is recognize the sinfulness of sin its essence is lawlessness it's not harmless 
None of it is. So he's raising the threat level. Because overall, as we, get, as we get used to things, we get used to seeing things, hearing things, doing things, thinking things, it sort of goes down. Our threat level goes down. And he's raising the threat level. Sin is bad. It's lawlessness. And then he gives us its diabolical origin. When you play with sin, you're messing around with the ultimate terrorist, Satan. He wants to blow you up. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And you go, wow, John, that's pretty heavy stuff. He's, he, was, he would say, exactly. And the second step is to see the absolute incompatibility with Christ. Sin's incompatibility with Christ. Say, I want to be more like Christ. And he's already set that up as a model. You want to be more like Christ. He said, okay, well then be less like this. Because Christ is without sin. And the more we see this, then the more we're going to see sin as it really is. And we're going to be determined to be rid of it. And then now, in case you're confused, because you've been here since we've been in 1 John, we've got to hold all that John has said in proper balance. This letter was meant to be read in a single reading, and we're, we're looking at it over a week's time. Earlier, he, he wrote that all people sin, and that when we sin, there's a path to forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, he says, those born of God will not sin. He's not contradicting himself. He knows what he's writing. Everybody sins. We need to be continually cleansed. But the one who's born of God will not willingly continue in sin. They will mess up, fess up, move on. John says everyone sins. And then he writes, but sin is incompatible with the Christian life. We don't continue to sin. This is not meant to be confusing. It's meant to make sense out of our experience and the reality of the gospel to change us. So think about it in terms of a parent no good parent tells their child, I know you're not perfect. I know you're going to sin. I love you. So just do whatever you want. You're going to anyway. Just do whatever you want. And no good parent tells their child, there you go again. You missed perfection again. I'm done with you. You're dead to me. The good parent does exactly what God does and exactly what John writes. I'm writing to you so you won't sin. Here, here's, what you, here's what the thriving life looks like. Here's what the connected life with God looks like. I'm writing so you won't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate in Christ. If you do sin, if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive your sins and cleanse you. Now go be my child, obey and thrive. And he's saying, look, the, the new birth in us is a real thing. And it exerts this strong internal pressure towards being like Christ. If you've been born again, you know that there is... Now inside of you something, it's the Holy Spirit, who's pressing you, I want to be more like Christ. At the same time, if you've been born again, you know that when you fail, when you sin, there's real guilt, there's real remorse. And the Bible says it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. So John has written so that we have certainty. You'll know you have eternal life. And he's given us these three tests to increase our clarity. Because increased clarity about certain things impacts our certainty. Clarity about who Christ is. Clarity about what sin is. Clarity about what our lives are to be about. Increased clarity empowers increased certainty. And perhaps you're struggling with doubt because you've not turned from your sin to Jesus. It happens. I have someone close to me who, who has willfully walked away from God doing what they want to do. And then now their confidence in the gospel has gone way down. 
Nothing happened intellectually. They didn't read some new book that, that they found Jesus' body somewhere. <laughs> what happened was they walked away from God. They lost moral clarity, and now they've lost gospel confidence. Sin undermines our confidence in Christ. So the remedy is turn to Christ for forgiveness. Turn to him and let him give you power over sin and ask him and, and, and he will increase your confidence in him. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to give you a couple of minutes, just a, a minute or so to pray for yourself. Father, we ask you to help us let the truth of Christ's coming and his return empower us to live our destiny now, to become more like him in his holiness and purity and love now. Help us to not be sidetracked by lesser things. And we turn from our sins, we turn to you right now again. We thank you that you cover our sin debt and you cleanse our sin stain. Help us to look at the world around us and see you. Help us to live faithfully in the world as it is. For your glory and for the good of others and for our own great joy. Talk to God for just a minute about what's going on in your life, what he's saying to you from his word this morning. <laughs>